What's going on? Welcome to the official start of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I did a bonus hour earlier, Drancer. Drancer is here. But seriously, Jamie, what's up? A lot. Yeah, you know, I feel like the advice when you have writer's block, right? Like, I don't know where to start. Is just start. Mm. So so let's let's pay our bills and then let's right. get into it. Canucks talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All Star Team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Kintech Studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over fifteen hundred five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net and six fifty six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drancer, you were on the scene. Uh, for Jim Rutherford's press conference at Rogers Arena today. I've had a little bit of an opportunity to share some of my thoughts, but there's still lots more to get into. We had some listeners call in. But yeah, where like where do you start? Where do you start after a wide-ranging, what, like 48, 50-minute press conference from the president of hockey operations that touches on so many different things going on with this hockey club right now? So it was an amazing availability. Like... I want to start with the performance, and then I want to get into the news. Because I had two conflicting reactions as I was watching it unfold. The first was that I was massively impressed by the frankness, the honesty, the willingness to hang in there. At one point, he waves off PR, like, I'll go all day. I loved that. Like, I loved that. It, it felt like, you know, it... it Considering how rarely we've heard from the organization, considering how poorly this season has gone, to hang in there and take those questions like that, at that length, I thought was a good reflection on the man and the executive. That was one of my reactions, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had many more, and and a lot of the rest of them were deep, deep skepticism about this club's overall direction and about their big picture approach in so many different things. Like, let's start with Tanner Pearson, okay? Because that was the reason the press conference was called. And to be honest, I didn't delve into that as much on on the last hour because it's not as much of a, you know, hot button talking point necessarily. But we should start there because, as you said, that's the reason they were talking at Rogers Arena anyways today. Yeah, and, and Rutherford suggested that the sides would meet today with the PA involved. Uh, I've got contacts telling me that meeting happened this morning. So sounds like sounds like for sure there there's going to be more shoes to drop here. I, I found it interesting because it on some level found like felt like the Canucks going on the offensive. You know, yep. covering their bases in advance of a story that's about to unfold outside of their control and outside of their auspices. And yet I thought it was notable that Rutherford didn't exactly go all in on defending his medical staff, right? Like, if something went wrong, we need to know about it so we can fix it going forward, was kind of his line. And the line from, you know, Dr. Bill Regan was, I would trust these surgeons with my family. And the line from Dr. Harry Cece was, you know, it's not a new medical staff completely. My team has vast experience and there's confidence in our staff from Canucks players. You know, I I sort of followed up and asked about the confidence that those players have at this point in the team's new look medical staff. And like Rutherford deferred the question and noted, and this sort of troubled me. This was one thing that really troubled me. The club says that they've conducted a thorough review 
of the process and, and that at no point did Pearson express skepticism about the course of treatment recommended. Okay. But then when I followed up about the confidence in players, Rutherford noted that he hadn't really spoken with the players and sort of punted the question to Dr. Cece, like how thorough an investigation into Quinn Hughes's comments is it if you haven't, you know, conducted a wide straw poll of the players? I, I mean, that to me didn't make a ton of sense. It didn't sort of fill me with the like, hey, workman like due diligence confidence kind of sunlight is the best disinfectant message that I feel like the organization was trying to convey. This was definitely not a press conference that put the Tanner Pearson issue to bed. It, no. Right. This was a laying the groundwork from a Canucks perspective for what's to come next, not settling it, answering the questions. Here's what happened. This was to me, it almost read as kind of a, a, a public, a, an opening public salvo of, Hey, there's a certain process that NHL teams follow when they're evaluating and treating injuries. We followed it. Despite that, sometimes setbacks happen, which, by the way, can 100% be true. That could 100% be the case. That Nobody's at fault here that setbacks just happen sometimes and it's a really unfortunate event. But it was not – this was not a – a message that was designed, I don't even think, to make you come away and say, okay, well, I know what happened now. No, it wasn't. And, and I don't feel like if the standard is – by doing this availability and addressing the Pearson injury situation, we want fans to know that the players are safe and looked after, and we want the players to know that too. Like if those are your, you know, to to go PR bucket to P, PR buckets guy on you, yeah. if those are your audience buckets that you're trying to hit there, do you think that effectively assuaged anyone's concerns? No. Okay. So let us know in the six fifty six feet six fifty six fifty Dunbar Lumber inbox listeners, dear listeners. If you agree, unless you're that, unless you're, what's his name? Del Dino. Dino in East Van. The Italian stallion. Dino. Don't trifle with me today, Dino. All right. With, so then we move on. Now, an unfortunate turn of phrase with the minor versus major surgery thing. Sure. Particularly coming today, but we don't need to focus on that. Because it all sort of falls under the wider big picture umbrella, and this is where I really found the analysis wanting. Now, I, I think we should basically go like news bit by news bit, and then one thirty is our final segment, and I want to like really tee off sure. on my big picture concerns and like really editorialize in that in that section. But realistically, we know me. I'm gonna slip into it. Well, yeah, anyway. it might happen before then. It might happen before then. I'm disappointed in the job I've done to this point, says Jim Rutherford. That's like coming in hot, right? Basically, right. Not at the start, because that's Tanner Pearson talk, but once it transitioned away from medical to we're talking about the team, first thing he had to say, basically. I'm good. really disappointed. First I'm of disappointed. all, good. Good. You know, he, he should be. He should be. We should be. Right? That's not to write him off. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I have some concerns coming out of that press conference. All of that said, I appreciated the accountability. I appreciated the mm -hmm. frankness. Specifically, he's disappointed by his inability to carve out cap space, he says, right? And he insists that the team's issue isn't the core, but admitted, we may have to do some things beyond what I thought we might have to do. Then he, then he dropped the surgery line, right? In his view, the contract, the contracts on the books are so toxic, are so inefficient, are so bad. I don't know. You you heard anyone talk like that ever? <laughs> Last twelve months, maybe. 
that we haven't had an opportunity to take those steps. We're stuck with contracts that we can't move. Until we move those out or until they expire, it's going to be hard to take those steps, says Jim Rutherford. So... <laughs> Which I there's a lot to unpack. Well, here. I agree with that. I agree with that analysis so, to a large extent. I agree with that analysis to a large extent, but I find grounds for concern, deep concern, when Rutherford says we thought we'd be able to make more noise in shedding deals, given that it was entirely predictable. That the team's bad contracts were were immovable, mm. and that the team's good players might have to get moved out if cap space was the priority, right? If cap space and cap sanity and restoring cap sanity was this team's priority, I, and this isn't hindsight, Jamie. What did we talk about 12 months ago? If you play the show from 12 months ago, what do we keep talking about? Teams impossible to uh, disassemble. The bad contracts don't have value. Your only way forward is to shed your good players. Mm-hmm. Your good players are the only people anyone's going to pay for. And that chatter often circulated to JT Miller and Bo Horvat. A year ago, anyway. To the point that David Amber started making fun of us. <laughs> right? So, isn't your primary task... Like, here's my concern. I appreciate that Rutherford was accountable and is disappointed. But isn't your primary task as the president of hockey operations, the big picture guy, to come in and assess the path forward and get that right? As opposed to adding, you know, a bunch of salary commitments long term, right? Doubling down on this team. And they did. Like, here's the thing, right? Rutherford talked at length about his skepticism about the Bruce There It Is era and sort of the success that they enjoyed during it. But the JT Miller contract tells us everything. Like, actions speak louder than words, right? The JT Miller contract tells us everything about where they thought this team was, and they thought it was an awful lot closer than it is. And they thought that they'd find ways to creatively move pieces around and reset this team more fundamentally than I ever thought they could, right? Remember when they dealt Hamannick? And it was like, wow! Yeah. Oh, my goodness! But there's only one get-out-of-jail-free card. In the chance deck. There's another in the community chess deck. <laughs> but but unfortunately, there's only one Pierre Dorian. Hot Pierre Summer. So, you know, I just, I really struggle with this. Because it's not hindsight to say, we were talking about the immovability of these deals. Like, I would, I would say maybe not Garland. Maybe that's like a bridge further than we were at a year ago. But aside from that, you know. Myers probably doesn't have a ton of value. Maybe if you hold him. I think I think the two OEL is going to be a problem. The two who have seen their value plummet are Garland and Besser. Well, now, but Besser's not immovable Be- now. No, but Besser Besser wasn't even signed. Yeah. We were talking about Besser as a problem to manage because of his QO. But like Besser had trade value a year ago. Not a lot. But you could have traded him as a rental. You know, again, I mean, he was struggling. Like, it's not like he was going to be a huge piece for anybody. Uh, There were some injury concerns throughout last season, too. Like, I'm not... But, I mean, there was value on an expiring deal for a guy who scored consistently. Anyway. Then we got back to the Miller contract, and this is the one that I think you're going to hear from a lot. This is one of the ones that concerns me the most. This is the one that's going to be, like, quote-tweeted in, like, 2026. (laughs) 
sooner. No, no, no. But like, I mean, continuously through yeah. at least 2026. Yeah, this this might be one that we hear about a lot. The cap is going to keep going up and up, Rutherford said. The cap is going to be 90 or 95 million. That contract isn't going to affect what the Canucks do down the road. Oh, boy. Now, the, so, no, no, no. Okay. I, I got to go. I got to okay. go. I gotta right. You do it. You I'm do sorry. it. The upper limit of the salary cap is set based on the percentage, like the percentage, the HRR hall, mm-hmm. the hockey-related revenue hall of the NHL in any given year. Over the course of the last 10 years, we have seen the cap suddenly flatten with people not really anticipating it until weeks before for reasons including the global pandemic. We all know that one. That one's obvious. I think we can all say, hey, that's probably not repeatable. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. But it also happened in 2014 because the Canadian dollar tanked. Currency fluctuations, the value of rights deals. Is there a certain rights deal, broadcast rights deal, that's up in 2026? Mm -hmm. A mega one? You think that might have an impact? You're telling me you're telling me the global economy is so on such sure footing right now that <laughs> you're confident that the NHL's share of of revenue is just going to keep growing and growing exponentially without any possibility of hiccups for reasons related to recessions, global events, war, famine, pestilence, whatever. I mean, the upper limit of the cap exists in the real world, not in the hockey world. It's not something artificial based on how it's calculated as a, as a you know based on the HRR sort of underpinning of the upper limit it's not it's not something that's sort of just artificially agreed to and exists independently of the wider world the the housing market the the like state of the global economy it's a product of those things you can't count on it growing exponentially because it doesn't and we've seen that just in the past 10 years. How real world, how the real world can knock on the doors of the hockey business and impact the conduct of that business. Additionally, additionally, the problem with an inefficient contract as the cap ex- as the cap increases is that your team doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right? So, if you have a bad contract and the cap goes up 10 million, that might make that might make your that contract a little bit less painful for you, but other teams, 31 other teams also are getting additional cap space and will not be held back by the same inefficient contract, particularly if they can avoid their own mistakes. So the, the harm to you might be reduced, but the advantage to your opponents is increased. Mm-hmm. This is a raw efficiency contest, right? And so the overall impact is still harmful deeply if you have an inefficient contract on your books particularly for a player who's i don't know 33 34 and and is falling off rapidly not saying that will happen from with miller for sure it's a possibility though probability it's a overwhelming probability very few players get better (laughs) into their 30s all right well, hold on the other point on that and this is a, a something that a texture brought up in the last hour which is a really good point to say that the JT Miller contract is not going to prevent the team from doing certain things in the future. It's probably already preventing them from signing Bo Horvat. Like it's not even a future thing. It's a, right. in the present thing. If JT Miller, if they pull the trigger on a JT Miller deal last summer or last trade deadline, 
the conversation surrounding Bo Horvat is completely different. So it's already impacting who the, where they're able to spend resources, where they're able to choose to spend resources right now. And it's going to continue to do that in the future. Well, and let's throw this one in, too. Let's throw this one in, too. This team's whole issue, per Rutherford, is their inability to clear inefficient money. So have you stopped digging here? All right. On Bo Horvat, I believe we've taken our best shot on Bo with the offer we have on the table right now is fair value for what he's done up to this year. Mm -hmm. And then Rutherford went on to explain, of course, with the season that he's had, he's sort of entered a different echelon. And we're in a pickle here, he said. Love that, by the way. Gush golly heck, the Canucks in a pickle. <laughs> he's had a career run, Rutherford said, and he's looking for his money. That level of compensation might be outside Vancouver's price range. Incredible stuff. Incredibly frank from the director of hockey operations. Well outside of what we usually hear about a player. Do you hear a bit of a shot there? Well, the phrase he's looking to get is money. That stands out, right? And and again, he, he, he couches it with saying, hey, fair enough, right? That's understandable, but... It's a bit of it. It read a bit of it, or I heard it at least as a bit of a shot, right? Like maybe he's not playing ball in these contract negotiations. It's like I've covered a lot of negotiations that go to the wire and then get done, right? We we talk about this like a deal's mm -hmm. never close until it is, right? Mm -hmm. I remember like Stamkos in Tampa Bay. This is always the one that stands out to me the most because I was sort of editing. Uh, for the Nation Network, so I was kind of tracking it for the Leafs Nation a little bit and just, like, following it and asking my site editors what they plan to do with it and blah, blah, blah. Using the Spaceballs lead every time. Because, like, the Stamkos thing in Toronto, just like the Tavares thing in Toronto, was a lot like the Shea Weber thing in Vancouver. Right. Do you remember that? Where yes. it's, like, my dad's milkman's yeah, personal yeah, yeah, trainer's yeah, yeah. Uber driver's, you know, was very Spaceballs. Anyway, there was one leak on the Stamkos negotiation in like 16 months and it was to Bob McKenzie and that's it that's it it just transpired completely behind the scenes if one side or the other is going to capitulate does it make sense that like a precursor to that would be this commentary I say, I say no Elliot Friedman was also pretty like Elliot Friedman described it as a low probability on 32 thoughts, which caused my ears to perk up today listening to his podcast. Cause I was just like, Oh, that's, that's, you know, putting your stamp down on it. Yeah. Elliot Friedman says low probability that to me registers it should register for our listeners. I mean, too. I think Friedman and Merrick were talking about it in only slightly less certain terms than the Rick Tockett thing, which they're talking about as a certainty. Yeah, as a as a done deal, right? And that and it's only again only slightly less certain the way they're talking about Bo Horvat. The other thing, which which transitions us nicely to poor Bruce Boudreaux. Well, yeah, but I, just the last point on Bo Horvat. It was also striking to hear Rutherford say, even with the deal we have on the table to Bo Horvat, which again presumably they would be happy if he signed because they offered him the deal, that would put them over the salary cap, and not fatally so, but because <laughs> there's other things you can do now. Because that's not technically true just what, with the money already committed. What's that's, he That's involving at? projections for the RFAs? RFAs and maybe even Andre Kuzmenko. But again, it's kind of positioning yourself as, well, this is an impossibility for us. Yeah. Right? That That's what that, that's what I took from that. I just don't understand the over-the-cap formulation. Like, that's just not true. Like, it's not hard true. I He was talking about projections, so he was talking about something different. But, like, you always... 
so long as you really don't have cap space and you have to like clear a deal to make it work first, you have you have cap space to make your choices. They're probably not good choices. Yeah, they might but, necessitate some other really tough decisions, but you ha- you can still make them. Bruce Boudreau. I mean, what can you say about this at this point? Like, I feel so bad for Boudreau at this point. You know, like, I can't remember covering a coach who's been this publicly on the outs. Like, we knew that Travis Green was being replaced. We knew that they were already searching for his replacements, but at no point was it confirmed by the organization directly. No. The way that Rutherford confirmed it today. And I mean, Travis Green was let go, what was it, December 4th? December 5th? When did we hear, when was like the Claude Julian? It was like two, three weeks before that? Two weeks. Two weeks? I mean, this is Rutherford. It was uh, American Thanksgiving. Yeah. So just a couple weeks, 10 days before that. Yeah, this is Jim Rutherford talking. I was talking yeah, to guys was, two months ago. It, sorry, it was literally a week from the Walker Julian reports by Elliot Friedman on Thirty Two Thoughts to it was literally one week. Yeah. So and and again, we all anticipated that's where it was going, but it that's was, a relatively quick turnaround. One week, one one week, one home game. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That was well, it was rushed, which is part of the problem here. But yes. This is the president saying, Bruce is our coach now, but oh yeah, as of two months ago, I was talking to other candidates. And then captioning, but with that, I'm calling and talking and don't know that we're making a change and don't want to make a change. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I I don't want to be right. I just am. Do you believe me when I say I don't want to be right? You all know me. I don't believe you. No. <laughs> and I don't think we believe... Jim here either, right? I don't know that we're making a change and don't want to make a change. And yet, seems like you have your guy. No? That's certainly the way everyone in the hockey world is talking. Yeah. And I mean, it would be so, it would be a major surprise at this point if that's not how it transpires over the next week. Absolutely. Two stunner. weeks, three weeks, whatever. Absolute whatever time stunner. frame you want to put it on. And I did think it was also interesting, you know, he was asked... How much of a challenging position does this put Bruce Boudreaux in? And his response was, well, we all are. We're all in a challenging position. And that's true. Obviously, there's a lot of frustration from Jim Rutherford and I'm sure from the rest of the front office and all layers of the team about how this season has gone. But, I mean, Boudreaux is the guy who's kind of facing the music day in, day out. So, I don't know. I mean, there was no resolution. Obviously, we weren't expecting a resolution or an announcement necessarily. But again, to, you know, on the one hand, you, you do have to respect the honesty and the openness. But man, is it really tough uh, to see the head coach be put in this position? And I also have to question, I mean, what message does having this play out in public send to not just your fans, but your players and the, the other people in the organization? Uh, because this is such a tough tough situation for Bruce Boudreaux. We're going to shift gears a little bit in the next segment. Man, there's so much going on from a Canucks perspective over the weekend. And of course, part of that uh, is the passing of franchise legend, beloved former Canuck, Gino OJ. All right, and let's be real. For all the crises raging around this club at the moment, because we we only got through like, ha- we didn't even get to the big picture. No, but we got lots going on You know on what? Here. That might actually be fitting because that dovetails nicely with me going off yeah. at one thirty, come back fireworks, but but at the end of the day, there's things that take precedence, mm-hmm. and you know I sat down to write last night, and 
I couldn't figure out how to weave everything going in around this or going on around this organization into a narrative that involved Gino Ojic. Gino's above it. Gino's more important. Life and death is more important, especially when you're part of Canucks Nation, right? Especially with the fatalism, right, <laughs> that is inherent in what we do collectively talking about this team. Gino was such a vital part of that conversation. I was crushed to hear the news on the broadcast watching from my couch yeah. yesterday. That takes precedence. We got to spend some time talking about what Gino meant and the unique connection that he had with Vancouver, and we're going to have Tim Hunter on to do it. Yeah, we had to respond or react to what Jim Rutherford had to say because that was so fresh, but obviously we do want to carve out a significant chunk of time here to remember Gino Ojek. As you said, Tim Hunter, a former Canuck teammate of Gino Ojek, will join us in the next segment. We'll get his uh, remembrances of Ojek. Uh, that's coming up next. It is Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, we're going to be joined momentarily here by former Canuck longtime NHLer Tim Hunter uh, to talk about his former teammate Gino Ojik and share some of his memories and his thoughts on uh, what Gino meant to the city, to his teammates, uh, to fans here, of course, as well. And we are now very pleased to be joined on the line, as I mentioned, uh, former Vancouver Canuck and longtime NHL player, Tim Hunter. Tim, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, I wish it was under happier circumstances, but we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us and, uh, and our listeners today. Yeah, you bet. Uh, sad uh, times, but... Uh... You know, he's a guy that uh, should be talked about a lot. Uh, Gino was very well-loved and very popular uh, person in, in BC. So, as you said, so beloved, certainly by fans. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of uh, commentary from his former teammates as well. And they all talked about just, you know, that word. What an incredible teammate he was, right? And what was it? I mean, we all see him, you know, sticking up on the ice for his teammates, but just beyond that, what was it about Gino Ojek that made him such a good teammate? Well, you know, I was listening to Stan's meal. I think Stan really um, kind of said it succinctly about being a tough guy is probably the toughest job to do in the NHL because, you know, you have to play the game and you have to still be on high alert and you never know what's going to happen and who you're going to have to make accountable for whatever they do to you, one of your teammates. And, uh, and the thing with Gino was he loved it. He loved his teammates. He was the most competitive guy you're ever going to meet. He did not uh, take losing easily. He wanted to win so bad and he cared so much about his teammates. He was one of the biggest cheerleaders on the bench, keeping guys loose always patting guys in the back, always smiling, joking. But when time uh, needed, he would do anything for his teammates. And uh, that's a real, real quite the quality Gino had. And uh, he didn't uh, take his job lightly, but uh, he loved what he did. And he loved his teammates. He loved doing it for him. Tim, what was always so amazing about Gino from his playing days, but also later on, was... He had this tough exterior, 
He was one of the toughest guys in the league. And yet there was a warmth to him that whether you were in the room or whether you were watching him play was just so evident. What, what was it about him, and, and how special is that in your experience based on the players you've played with and watched? Yeah, that's really. he was a real people person. He loved people. Uh, he wanted to get to know you. He wanted to hug you, shake your hand, ask how you're doing. And, and you know, it was just uh, right to this, the last time I saw him uh, in the summer at the golf tournament, um, you know, sat with him and Peter, his best friend. Um, we just had some laughs and, and just shared old times. But he's always wanting to know, how are you doing? Uh, he didn't want to talk about himself and uh, just a genuine people person. He, the kids, not just Indigenous kids, but all kids, loved him because he was this big, gentle giant that he, he was so big and imposing, but yet he would get down on his knee and, and talk to young kids and, and get at their level and joke with them. And, you know, he was just, uh, just an incredible guy and a great ambassador for the game of hockey, for the community in, in Vancouver and BC and um, in general, just uh, the, the Canucks lost a great ambassador to the game and a great person in Gino. That's for sure. Tim, you had a wonderful post on Twitter with some great photos, and I encourage everyone to check it out at hockey underscore TR. Uh, but I'm just going to read it to you and then ask a follow-up question. You wrote, rest in peace, Gino. He was a very kind and special person. My roommate while in Vancouver and one hell of a teammate. Canucks fans lost a great one today. So a lovely, heartfelt sentiment. But one thing that piqued my interest, because there is nothing better in this world than really good Gino Ojic stories, was that you were his roommate. Uh, during those three Canucks seasons, so so you came in 1993-94 as an older player. How did you guys get matched together? What are your best Geno roommate stories? Well, yeah, when I was on waivers with the Canucks, with uh, Quebec, mm-hmm. uh, my lawyer said, you know, which team is a good fit for you? And I said, well, Vancouver. I think I could really help Geno Ajik. He's young. He's only in his early 20s. I'm in my 30s. And I could, I think I could really help him and get him to the next level of being a player and a tough guy. And, you know, it didn't take much, believe me. But uh, so, lo and behold, and, you know, I meet Pat, and Pat, like right away, Pat, Gino and Pavel room together, and Pat put Gino with me. Mm. And it was great. It was fun. There were lots of stories. And, you know, we had the earthquake. We are in L.A. at that LAX Marriott, and it was a 3.30 in the morning. And I thought, <laughs> guys, we had a night. We had a day off the next day, and I right. thought the guys were coming in to shake me out of bed because the drawer, <laughs> the drawer handles were shaky, and I thought, okay, here, Hunt, let's go down in the hot tub and drink some beer or something. And I look over at the, I look over at the clock, and it's three thirty, and then I look back, and it's clocks off, and then I realized something was up. So I got up, looked out the window, and I could see the water sloshing in and out of the pool and hitting the, the windows of the ground-level units around the pool at the LAX Merritt. And I wake Gino up. I said, Gino, I said, let's go. I said, there's an earthquake. we got to get, get out of the room and get, get out of here. Oh, partner, I'm tired. I'm sleeping too much. <laughs> <laughs> I said, come on. I said, no, you got to get out. You, no, no, I'm tired. I'm, le- I'm staying here. You can go. See you, partner. And, you know, and he's just like nonchalant. 
So I get out. Well, I'm out in Century Boulevard. They're telling us all this not to worry. The hotel's not going to go down. It's on rollers. Everything's safe. Good, good. It's just a bunch of banging around. So, you know, but Gino, <laughs> just a case of being fearless. He feared nothing. He, he was sleep, sleep was more important to him. But but later on, I, I, you know, Pat would call us in and we'd sit around and have a couple of beers at his desk. He goes, how's things going? How's everything going? How's Gino? How, how's, how's Gino? How's this, that? And I'd say, you know, Pat, I think we should put Gino back with Pavel. I said, those guys literally follow each other around. They love each other. He doesn't spend any time in the room with me. I said, let's put him back with Pavel. I know, you know, Pat kind of was worried about those guys, you know, running around and having too much fun and, and not being concerned with playing and what have you and rest. And I said, Pat, I'll make sure and the older guys will make sure that they toe the line and they're all right. But I really think we should put them back together because they just, they just love each other so much. They're such good buddies. And I think it would be better for everything. I said, you don't need a 32 year old guy room with a 22 year old <laughs> for, for, for very long. I, I think I've kind of helped him what I can. And I think he's well on his way. I said, so, and Pat was like, all right, no problem. No problem. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. So they moved them back together and they were so happy. You know, and that's that's the key. And and Gino, you know, when when players are happy, not that he wasn't disappointed staying with me, but you know, um, I was like a father figure to him. I had to help him out a few times when he forgot underwear and socks on the road and his toothbrush <laughs> and things like that. You know, the one time we we're in Chicago and he had forgot all that stuff, and I went out with a bunch, with a bunch of the guys. He didn't want to go out, and he had he had been. Uh, I guess he didn't get enough sleep the night before. And we're, uh, we go out and I come back and he used my toothbrush and toothpaste. <laughs> I was like, come on, Gino. I told you I'd get you another one. So I called down the front desk. I said, hey, guys. Uh, hey, uh, oh, yes, Mr. Hunter. I said, can we, uh, do you have an extra toothbrush or toothpaste down there I could borrow? I forgot mine. Oh, yeah, come on down. Here. So I got him. I gave him mine and I got the new one. <laughs> but um tell you what he would do anything for you and uh um it was such a, a great thing to go into vancouver and be part of the alumni and some of the events and see him there in the alumni lounge and lots of people around wherever we went on the road whatever city in canada there was always a big group of people uh to meet gino after the game to go for dinner or to come and take kids in the dressing room and meet Pavel and meet the guys in the room and everyone was so happy and he, I don't know if he ever went out alone after a game and on a road on the road in the Canadian city because everywhere we went he had so many people around him that uh, wanted to you know be part and what he was all about he just loved it he just loved having a big group he'd bring all the guys in the locker room the young kids and meet everybody and meet Pat and you know, it was great. Pat loved Gino. He just truly loved Gino. He like loved him like a son. You touched on the special relationship between Pavel and Gino. And, you know, the way Pavel's formulated it to me in the past, right, is it was a big, big transition for Gino to go from where he'd grown up in Quebec to playing in Vancouver, and, and this is a direct Pavel Bure quote, by the way, and become a big shot celebrity. Um, and he explained that for him, he was born in Moscow, the big city, and he sort of had to transition to a littler environment 
in Vancouver. It was difficult for him. It was difficult for Gino, and that's probably why they bonded together. What was it like to be teammates with those two? How special was their relationship from a teammate perspective? Well, you know, it was, and, and, you know, Pavel knew, and, you know, later on, I don't know if you've ever seen Pavel elbow chain Churla, but Pavel knew he had to take things in his own hands because yep. Gino and I couldn't couldn't play on his line all the time or <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> and 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 that came from being fearless because he knew that his teammates had his back and his number one, his best friend had his back, Gino. And and that's you know, those guys were like brothers because yeah, they came through similar different backgrounds that they had to assimilate into this background that they were now forced to be in in Vancouver. And yeah, Gino was, Gino was big. He was, the, like I said, there was always a raft of people outside the, the, the dress room to see Gino after a game and, and um, friends and family and buddies and people just wanted his autographs. He, he was so well loved the way he played. You know, Gino was a good hockey player. He, he could score, he could fight, he could make plays. You know, he was, he, he did it all. And that's, you know, was my goal as a tough guy to be able to contribute and play and not just sit on the bench and go out and have to duke it out with somebody because he slashed your star player. And uh, Gino was every bit of that. He, he uh, you know, I run to the Stanley Cup. He played in the second, third line. And we had Antoski, McIntyre, and I on the third line, fourth line. So, you know, Gino was a big part of that, uh, that Canuck team in that uh, 90s. And, uh, and a big part of that because... He felt comfortable, and uh, because he has a, had a good buddy that was a star player, and Pavel Pavel was as humble as Gino. He he, he didn't uh, act like a big shot. He didn't uh, he wasn't standoffish, especially around us in the room, uh, and he treated uh, everyone well as well. We're talking to uh, former Canuck Tim Hunter here on Canucks Talk uh, about his memories of. Gino Ojik, uh, of course, beloved former Canuck who passed away over the weekend. And I find it really interesting, as you say, Tim, that you thought Vancouver would be a good fit for you, at least in part because you thought you could help Gino Ojik kind of grow into uh, the tough guy role in the NHL. Obviously something you knew a lot about with your career uh, in Calgary and, and other places up to that point. What was it? Do you remember what kind of caught your attention about Gino that, that made you think, oh, that's a guy that... Uh, that I'd love to get a chance to work with. Well, he just needed a bit of understanding of, of like the role. He didn't have much of a role model in, in Vancouver. I know Ron DeLorme had played that and was around, but not all the time. And just somebody to just kind of make him understand that, you know, you didn't just have to fight to fight. You fought when you needed to fight and you fought with purpose and, and you needed to play the game. You, you, there was a game to be played and another game in the game was the tough guy thing. But learn to play the game, be disciplined so you don't hurt the team. So Pat is reliable on you that he can put you out in the last minute of the period and put you out in important situations because you're a good hockey player, not just a tough guy. And that was that was what I saw in Gino. He was just this raw guy that was that was like there wasn't a guy in the league that wasn't a, that uh, wasn't afraid of Gino. I mean, everyone was afraid of Gino. There was everyone was afraid of Gino. So, um, you know, he was very feared. And but you know that get a little bit of guidance. And I had lots of that in Calgary in my early days, and patience by the organization to let me grow into my role. And 
then again, go, coming to Vancouver and Pat treating me like a like he treated everybody and giving me responsibility and allowing me to, you know, mentor Gino somewhat, and then still still play and and make a contrib- contribution as a player. So, um, you know, those are the things that young guys need, and that's why you have guys on on teams that are trying to be successful that have won cups, guys that have uh, had success. It breeds through the other guys, and they know how to how to teach and mentor because, you know, on the end of the day, we're all we're all dads in, in our own way, and we all want to be want to be uh, mentors. And um, it was a thing that just came natural to to me during my playing career. Uh, Tim, so I was up. Uh, I was looking on hockeyfights.com at uh, Gino Ojic's. Uh, you know, they call it his fight card from his career. All the different players that he dropped the gloves with, and there's a lot of uh, well-known and men- much feared names on that list. And uh, you're on that list as well. It was uh, October 19th, 1991, when you were a member of the Calgary Flames. They have it, and I believe that game was at the Pacific Coliseum. Probably more remembered for for Gino actually beating Mike Vernon on a penalty shot, but they also have you down uh, for, for fighting each other in the first period of that game. Do you remember dropping the gloves with Gino? In, in I do. One? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It was behind the net and uh, he was, he was tough to handle. Let me tell you, he was very tough to handle. And uh, he, uh, yeah, I, you know, and Gino was one of those guys that um, you weren't gonna get the best of him. You know, he got his licks in. He got his licks in, and you knew where you were in a fight when you fought Gino Ojek. And I've never seen him, you know, lose a fight where he's down on the ice and the other guy's skating away. Um, no, no. Gino, uh, Gino was a very, very good fighter. And I was smart enough to study these guys. And when I watched some of his videos, I went, oh, boy, this is going to be a handful. Because I knew <laughs> at some point... You know, the, a lot of the young guys, they want to they come in the league and they want to test, they try the Wiley veteran and see how they do against the veteran guys. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, we just kind of came together with some heavy hitting and and then he just, you know, we just decided, well, okay, let's get this over with. And, uh, yeah, and we laughed about it when we were teammates. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, we'll, we'll end on that note. We really appreciate the time. Those are fantastic stories, and I know our listeners are, uh, are are thrilled to hear about it as well. Thanks for taking time for us. You bet, guys. And all my condolences to Gino and, and all his family and everyone uh, for his loss. That is uh, – thanks, Tim. Thanks, we appreciate Tim. it. That's uh, former Canuck, longtime NHL or longtime tough guy in the NHL. Uh, and former teammate of Gino Ojeks and roommate uh, Tim Hunter with some uh, some fantastic perspective. And uh, I was all I, I was really happy to get Tim on the show today because just a, a legendary, a legendarily tough player in his day, right? And of course, most famously with the Calgary Flames in the eighties, but then also with the Vancouver Canucks. And to hear from him, you know, we can all see it on the ice with Gino, but to hear from somebody like Tim Hunter who actually dropped the gloves with him, what that toughness was like, what the reputation was like I think just adds a whole other layer of uh, of perspective onto it. Yeah, and and the way like I remember talking to Gino and asking him about his recovery to the point where in 2020 or 2019 anyway. Do you remember when they had the uh, captain ceremony, the 50th anniversary thing and Gino was able to skate onto Vancouver ice and mm-hmm. Gino, Gino 
rings out from the from the crowd and it was just this overwhelmingly touching moment considering that you know four years earlier he'd been given weeks to live medically and people had rallied outside the hospital in support of him chanting Gino 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 and I remember asking him about it after the fact and he says oh it was the best I got to see Cliff I got to see Darcy I got to see Yurke I got to see all these guys. We had some brewskis. We had some laughs in the locker room. I was putting on gear. It was like, it was like old times. And, you know, I, I had this sort of, I was surprised. I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised by his response because I thought, you know, this moment celebrating you, how far you've come health wise, that this would be this big moment for you. And yet naturally, like the first place Gino went was like, yeah, I got to teammates. see all my friends yeah. and hang, hang out, out with my teammates. And I just think that's so typical of who he was and why he's spoken about the way that he's spoken about. And and to come back to Cooper's thing about fans sniffing out, you know, Luke Shen's good guy mm. qualities, fans could tell. Fans could tell that Gino loved his teammates. Fans could tell that Gino loved being a Vancouver Canuck. And I think that's why there was such a special bond formed. I, I also do think there's something of Gino as like the underdog who 100%. overcomes yep. where he becomes like aspirational. Like Gino's what we all want for this franchise in some ways, right? The To like overcome long odds, to do it with grace and humor and a team first mentality. And I think to some extent fans grafted the, their aspirations for the Canucks in general onto this player who wore the colors with just about as much pride as anyone ever has. And there's something really special about that, particularly because it wasn't just the fans who embraced him, but he went to such great lengths to embrace them back. And that's unique. Like there's something unique about the way Gino's regarded by Canucks fans and the way he regarded this city and this hockey market. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever see it again. It was truly special, and it's a tremendous loss for Canucks fans, and, for sure. And it's one of those things where, look, obviously, you know, what do we talk about on a day-to-day basis? How the Canucks can win the Stanley Cup, right? And that's that's the goal from a business perspective, and that's what fans mostly want to see. But, you know, with Gino, I was thinking about it, and it does kind of get back to, like, why do we watch sports to begin with, right? And part of it is, you know, you want to cheer for your team to win, Part of it is you want to see moments of, of athletic brilliance and all of that. But when you look at the connection, to have a connection forged between an athlete, a player, and the fan base that doesn't just exist when they're playing. And it, it, it persists for decades after that, right? Decades after they've left the city, or left the team at least. That is... That's such a huge fundamental part, right? That that sports is and, and hockey in particular can create those connections. And with Gino Ojic, it's probably the prime example of of that connection between the fans and the player in Vancouver Canucks history. And as you said, I mean, it's such a rare, precious thing. Who knows if and when we will see it again? I mean, in, in for his role in particular, obviously the game has changed so much, it won't be exactly the same, but it's so rare you hold on to it when you do have it as a fan, as a city, as a fan base, uh, and a really sad, sad and unfortunate, but uh, I'm glad that we could we could have a former teammate on to, uh, to, to share those memories. Yeah, and it's the rarity of it 
right? The rarity of the quality of person that yeah. Gino was that made him so cherished. Um, yeah, that's why uh, that's why Canucks fans of all ages, all stripes, were lucky that he was generous enough to share his life, and it was a wonderful life lived with all of us. Uh, as mentioned, there's so much going on, but I'm really glad we could carve out that time to talk about Gino Ojic and his his time in Vancouver and his legacy with the Canucks. We'll get back on to the current state of the team. Our Monday regular, Gemma Karsten-Smith from the Canadian Press will join us next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 Five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I was so uh, distracted. There was so much to get into off the top of the show, Drance. I realized I didn't introduce you as Canucks Insider, who also covers the team at The Athletics. So there you go. For everyone who didn't know, Drance is a Canucks Insider who also covers the team uh, at The Athletic. Well, um, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. It's just something I'm contractually obligated to have read on the air. So <laughs> no no biggie. Something that I'm contractually <laughs> obligated to read to read on the air. Hey, I got it in. I hey, got it in. Also, also, completely my fault. I was like making what's yeah, up right. jokes and like just yeah so that's on me there you go uh tell your editors or, or the the power <laughs> i guess the new york times tell the new york times to get mad at me i want to make clear i do not represent the new york times <laughs> uh all right look we, we were so much to get into today we'll continue to talk about the jim rutherford presser uh but we're also going to be joined right now from the canadian press we talk to her every monday she is Gemma karstens smith Gemma. Man, I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin. We'll get to the clips that you you've prepared from the last week because there is so much going on. But uh, I mean, first of all, how are you, Gemma? Let's start there. Honestly, like, what's even the point in me doing these clips today? Because like everything has changed and nothing is the same, and well, time is a flat. Well, here's what here's what I think we'll do. Do you want to do you want to just tear yeah. up the segment and we'll go I, over I, Rutherford I, clips? I think we'll talk Rutherford and then like yeah. we'll see how we do and if we want to get to a clip or two at the end we'll we'll get to okay. it. Does, or, that, or, does that sound okay. good? Or can we do Rutherford clips? Are we poised uh, to do I'm that? I'm not that prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that prepared. Sorry. Fair enough. Well what caught your ears most Gemma because realistically you know today is one of those days and we couldn't have known at the outset but today is one of those days where it feels like we should just Tear up the paper, throw it in the wastebasket, Kobe, and discuss the news of the day because there is so much of it. What what caught your ears most during Rutherford's availability today? Well, I'm still trying to figure out what the difference is between major surgery and a rebuild. That's mm. a big one because um, to me those sound very similar. Um, other things that caught my ear, I was <laughs> I thought he was pretty funny on tanking um i don't think we've ever heard rutherford be funny like that so that was um, <laughs> a breath of fresh air um uh yeah i there was just honestly so much um i i thought that what he had to say about trades was interesting where he said it's not like we've had trades on the table that we've walked away from those are hard to make it kind of reinforces what we've been saying is that like you need 
two teams in order to make a trade. And the Canucks just don't really have the partners right now. Like teams are, the cap is so flat. Teams are so strapped that moving these contracts is, it's an albatross, right? Um, that said, it's interesting that they're going to look towards buyouts this summer. I think that that's a, a, a bit of a, um, a sign of defeat. Um, but mm. it's not, uh, it's not really like, there's only so much they can do. Right. So, um, there's there's so much to dig into here. Uh, he, he used the accountability word, which is always fun. It makes makes uh, for our ABCs um, just just all that more prevalent. So uh, yeah, there's just it was a uh, I was surprised he talked so long. Like it was uh, it was awesome. He waved off PR. He's like, I'll go all day. It was That's awesome. awesome. Like, how often do we see that? Not Never. often. And, and, and we need to see that because we haven't heard from these guys in, in ages, right? And this is a, a fan base that's, that's we've, we talk about it every single week, how, how invested this fan base is, how angry this fan base is. And they want these answers. Even, I, I thought that they got a lot more answers today than um, we've seen in a really long time. You might not like the answers, but the answers are there. Gemma, can I ask you to pick at the signs of defeat caption that you just gave to any buyout talk i think that's a fascinating formulation um what exactly do you mean by that how do you view the act of this organization considering buyouts i jim rutherford has said since the day came in that he wants to create cap space he's obviously been trying the fact that he says that they haven't been walking away from trades shows that uh they have been trying and there's just nothing there it shows that um that they're kind of almost waving the white flags. Like there's only so much we can do with these contracts. We either have to wait for them to expire. Or we got to buy these guys out. Um, and they're just that bad. And the worst part is I think that they find another one in the fall. Um, that's going to be aged just about as well, as well as some of these ones that they've already, that they were already locked into when Rutherford and Elvin stepped into their position. So um, I think that that's what it, uh, I mean by signs of defeat, that there's just, they know that there's only so much they can do and that if they want to make the changes that they say they want to make, that they want to get younger, that they want to get um, uh, this major surgery done, that they'll need to um, do some unpopular moves, including some buyouts. Gemma, one of the things that's always striking to me, and it was especially striking today, but it's not the first time that this discrepancy has kind of come up. And it's the discrepancy between kind of the diagnosis that Jim Rutherford has for the team, which is obvious, a lot of frustration uh, about, you know, not necessarily the core players, but everything around them, about the contracts, about the way they play the game. It's a pretty dire diagnosis, but the path forward doesn't seem to match up with how serious that diagnosis is, right? And I'm talking about, you know, kind of quick fix things like, okay, well, we're going to, we're not going to target draft picks. We're going to target players who, uh, you know, maybe didn't work out on their entry level deals and you know, need a change of scenery and see if we can help them improve. What do you think accounts for that discrepancy, right? Because on the one hand, it's, he can paint a pretty dire picture of the state of the team, but the moves that he proposes to fix it don't necessarily seem to match up to it. I have to believe in my heart of hearts that that's, Rutherford holding his cards close to the chest and not um, uh, giving everything away. Um, I, I, I have to believe there's a bigger plan than just signing guys to ELCs that haven't worked out. And I mean, like we've, we've seen them do a little bit of that. We see, see how they brought in Ethan Barrett and Ethan Barrett's been good, 
but not a standout. He's not changing his team in any way, shape, or form. Like, he had a great goal last night, but, if, like, it's not an every-game thing for him. He's not a, a massive dis- difference maker. You would need, like, 72 Ethan Bears on this team in order to make a big difference, and there's you don't have enough roster spots for that. That's just not a thing. So uh, <laughs> The 72-man I, I, roster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you imagine? That would be very intriguing. Anyway, um, but... I I have to believe that uh, Jim Rutherford has bigger plans and he's just not willing to share them with the general public because if if this is it, man, we are in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, the thing was, though, that he was so forthcoming. Like, it didn't feel like a guy who was holding a lot back, did it? I mean... We've all we're we're all complex beings here, Dran. Like, <laughs> so true, so true. <laughs> I just, I mean, because on one hand he's talking about how you need to get players twenty five, twenty six years old, and things will get better, blah blah blah, in a year or two. But at the same time, he's saying, well, we might have to move out some of our core pieces in order to get the right players. So those two things don't drive either. So I think it's a lot of there's some paradoxes to pick apart in here mm-hmm. um for sure um and I, I i have to believe that there's that there's more at work uh, one of the other surprising part well maybe not surprising given some of the reporting we we've heard but about the coaching situation you know rutherford obviously didn't confirm or name names or anything about a replacement said bruce is our coach now but i did think it was very striking that he was again open upfront, honest that you know, as long as a couple of months ago, he's called around, he's talked to different people, uh, but didn't want to make cha- a change then. Still doesn't want to make a change, despite the fact that he's uh, talked to other potential candidates. What did you make of that revelation and that maybe confirmation is a better way to put it from Jim Rutherford? Thank goodness that they're actually like confirming it, because it's just been so much talk. It's taken so much air out of um, this market, and uh, there have been so many rumors. So uh, poor Bruce. Like, just poor Bruce. Um, one of the clips that I was uh, going to uh, get to today was about Bo, Bo-, Bo- Horvat, that's his name, um, talking about the kind of impact that, that uh, all of these rumors would have been having, not only on the players, but on Bruce himself. And it's just got to, for Bruce to hear he's our coach for now, that's pretty damn with faint praise, is a nice way to say it. Um, but at least it's okay I'm not getting fired today, right? Um, I think that there have been conversations um, all along, not only between Rutherford and other camps, but between Rutherford and Bruce, but what needs to happen. And I'm sure that for um, Rutherford to come out today and support Bruce, even if it's in a very tacit way, uh, helps the coach going forward. Gemma, the... Boudreaux thing. It's got to be getting more and more difficult. The difficulty I'd imagine is mounting for him to not take that next turn off onto the low road. Right? (laughs) Um, 100%. I I know that's how I'd feel. I'd be be shoulder checking and uh, looking in my rear view mirror. But Boudreaux's better than I am, clearly. And to this point, he's been on that high road. How poorly does this entire situation reflect on the organization at this point in your mind? I think that it, it's 
difficult to put into words how badly, honestly. I think that uh, if you had told us at the beginning of the season that this is where we would be, not only with Boudreaux, but with um, how the games have gone and how many just pies in the face this organization has seen, I, I, you couldn't tell me that and I would believe it. Um, and this isn't an organization that I hold in as like an esteemed hockey operations group that is just like beyond reproach in any way, shape or form. I just think that th- everything that could go wrong has gone wrong this season. And the way it's been handled has just been like the bumbliest of bumbles. So I, I just, I can't even begin to describe how bad it's been. Um, and I think that with Boudreaux has been a, a real glaring uh, black eye for the organization because he's someone who has been so optimistic, who has never given up, whose players continue to play for him um, and who continues to, to wear it, you know? So to see that, I, like you said, I, I would, I probably would pulled over on the shoulder of the road and just like left the car. Cause I'm out. <laughs> in conversation with Gemma Carsten Smith of the Canadian Press here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650, as we continue to react to uh, all of the many things that Jim Rutherford had to say earlier today at Rogers Arena. Uh, Bo Horvat, obviously another big talking point, lots of reporting uh, around the situation. Of course, Jim Rutherford was asked, and I did have somebody uh, text in referencing our conversation last week, Gemma, who says P is now for pickle in the Canucks ABCs, <laughs> which is a great addition to the ABCs of the Canucks because that's how Bruce Boudreau described uh, the situation between them and, or sorry, uh, Jim Rutherford described the situation between them and Bo Horvat. And I thought it was really fascinating the commentary that even if he took the offer that was on the table, they would be over the cap for next year. And I'm not sure the math involved to get to that conclusion, but I thought it was a really interesting uh, nugget to throw out there at the, uh, at the availability today. Yeah. And that's when he, after he goes on to say, um, um, we've, we've offered him something really fair for his work up to this year. Well, this is a career year. He's obviously not going to take anything for his work up to this year. Come on, man. Um, uh, Yeah, it was, it was so telling. It's, it's just one more one more nail in that coffin. We all want to see Bo back because he's a great player and a great um, – he deals with us media folks on a daily basis, which is much appreciated. Um, but I, I think it's just one more sign that he's out the door. Um, and it's just a question of finding that trade partner, right? Like, uh, like Rutherford was saying, there haven't been um, a number – like a, a huge number of trades that have, have come down the pipe here. It's uh, all about finding the right one, and they haven't done that yet. Gemma, where, where do we even go from here in the wake oh, of all of that commentary? I mean, new coach seems like an inevitability. Retool, not rebuild. Well, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do this because this is um, this is the, like – you know, detailed readings of what we're hearing at availability segment. How do you see the difference between a rebuild and a retool? Um, well, I think about four letters, um, but there's not. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> see, I think, of, I think of four different letters, but that's fair yeah. enough. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> I mean... Uh, you're, we all know they're doing a rebuild. You can't call it major surgery 
and not call it a rebuild. I'm sorry. It's just lipstick on a pig at that point. Um, I, I really and truly think that that's what this team is in for. You can call it whatever you want, but it's this team is going to look a lot different next year, and it has to because this group has not worked out. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult to make those changes. Um, as Jim Rutherford uh, said, he full up said that it's been hard to do the work that he, he thinks needs to be done. Um, and it, it'll probably take more than one season. Uh, Jens, you asked a really good question about how long this could take. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he said three years. Oh, yeah, for sure, three years. I don't, I don't know, man. Three years is cutting it close. <laughs> Things are pretty dire. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't I see three so. years as a long time. No. Three years no, to me is, like, quick. Like, I think yeah. you can tear this down to the studs and be good again in three years, much less. Like, I think retooling, you're in for. Yeah, oh, exactly. The rest I, of this decade, thing. at least, is going to suck. Well, and that's the thing, is that a, a retool is so much more difficult than a rebuild in so many ways. Uh, I think that... It's just, it's yeah, it's it's it seems almost impossible at this point. But I, who knows, who knows? I don't. <laughs> I have no, I have no answers. I have no answers. Likewise. But I, I, my my answer is that I believe major surgery is a rebuild, no matter what you want to call it. Uh, a couple other notes uh, from the Jim Rutherford press agenda. One, one of the best lines was, uh, I thought we were tanking. We're pretty close to the <laughs> bottom. And, you know, he goes on to say, look, obviously he would never, um, you know, coaches and players don't tank. But he did kind of allude to, well, there's other decisions we can make as an organization that might, you know, help us with our uh, w- with our lottery positioning. He also, also referenced, of course, how they'd love to pick first overall this year, just like everyone else. I don't know that we're ever going to see those moves made to the degree that a lot of fans might want them to be made, but I did think it was at least interesting. I'm not sure we've ever heard it acknowledged quite like that in in Vancouver, that, yeah, actually, there might be some advantages, and we might even make decisions uh, that could help us float around the bottom of the standings for the rest of the year. I think what he's saying is that that front office is going to be on their phones, like, like surgically attached to their phones from now until March 3rd. Um, they are going to be busy because they've got a lot of work to do. There could be a lot of moves being made uh, between here and the NHL trade deadline. Uh, I would not be surprised to see a lot of uh, pieces head out the door and uh, um, in order to not only bring in picks and, and set the team up for its best chance uh, at, at the Bedard sweepstakes, um, but also to create that cap space they so so um, covet. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gemma, with sorry, we were talking about rebuilding, retooling, the hopelessness of it all, and the tank. Do you meaningfully distinguish between a team like Chicago and Vancouver? They might be close in the standings. Well, they're not even. But, like, there's a pretty clear difference in ambition and what exactly has led them to that point, right? Or am I off my rocker no. suggesting this? No, I think you're you're very right in that. I think that – and, I mean, Chicago hasn't really tried to hide that in any way, shape, or form, right? But the Canucks weren't the Blackhawks heading into this year. The Canucks heading into this year really believed that they had a shot at making the playoffs. 
It's just that everything has gone wrong, left, right, and center, both on and off the ice. Um, so I think that that's the only real difference is the uh, Blackhawks are realists and that the uh, um, Canucks this season have been um, fabulous. <laughs> uh, before we let you go, Gemma, the fabulous. Uh, the, Let's go. The stated reason for the press conference today was an update on the Tanner Pearson situation. Uh, I don't know, but I have a lot more clarity on what exactly <laughs> happened. What do you think the goal was with the initial medical update, and what do you think was accomplished for that part of the press conference? I think nothing was accomplished. I'm sorry, but I it, think it's absolutely crazy that you bring out two doctors who say we can't talk about this because of privacy reasons. Like here, here's here's the situation in very general terms. We will not give you any more information because of privacy reasons. Then don't hold the press conference in the first place. Just like I'm so glad that they did because we got to hear from Jim Rutherford and that's really important. But put out a press release about Tanner Pearson. Say this is all the information we can give you because of privacy reasons, and then have a press conference with Jim Rutherford on all the other issues because there were obviously lots to talk about. Um, it's another another egg on the face of this organization because it's this poor. 30-year-old player has obviously uh, gone through something that was not expected this season. And whether there are medical staff or training staff or whoever to blame, it it sucks for Tanner Pearson that he's going to miss a, basically an entire season of, of his career because of um, this injury that was only supposed to be, what, four to six weeks. I think that's really disappointing for everyone involved. And uh, to handle it like this is... So Canuxian. <laughs> That's a perfect a perfect note to leave it on, Gemma. You brought the fire, as you always do on a busy day. We'll get back to our regular segment next week. Have a great week. We'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Cheers, Gemma. That is Gemma Karsten-Smith, who, of course, covers the Canucks for the Canadian press with uh, lots to say about the Jim Rutherford press conference from earlier today. The rebuild line is the one that we're starting with on the other side. Yeah. When we get to the next segment, the idea that this team is, or sorry, the, the, we're not tanking? No. No, you're not. You're very much not. And I really, really want to discuss this at length. One thirty. Let's go. We're going to take an early break here. Drance is, uh, is positively shaking, ready to get going, ready to unleash a rant here Quivering. on the other side. <laughs> yes. So we'll take a quick Weird. break. If we haven't weirded you out, come we'll back on the other back side. We'll get back early. 6.50, 6.50. Keep your thoughts coming in. Final segment of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 6.50. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. Final segment of the day. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance here, live from the Kintech Studio. 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com. Uh, we, we've So Jim Rutherford, obviously Canucks president of hockey operations, spoke to the media earlier today. We've gone through a lot of the newsy items, Bo Horvat, Bruce Boudreau, JT Miller, the direction for the future. Uh, we want to get into more of the big picture thoughts from Jim Rutherford now. And this text comes in from Rager who says, uh, hearing Drant say, quote, I want to discuss when he's clearly going to yell and get mad is just like when I used to bring my report card home and my parents called me back upstairs, quote, to discuss. <laughs> so you've been holding it in, Drancer. You've got some thoughts. 
I'll seed the floor. Well, what, what did you make? What, we, what, Gemma touched on it a bit. I thought we were tanking. We're pretty close to the bottom. That, to me, is the joke, quote, way of thinking that, like, deeply concerns me. Deeply. Like, oh, no, the rest of this decade could get wasted here. Right? Now, I want to caption this. I've obviously become an absolutist, a dogmatic absolutist that the only way forward for this team is toward the bottom, is to take a meaningful, active, intentional, thoughtful step back for the benefit of the, of the future. But I wasn't always like this, okay? <laughs> when I first came back to cover this team, I thought, Hughes and Pedersen are elite contributors. You have to maximize their ELC window. That, to me, was like the goal, the big picture thing, right? How do you do this with Tanev and Markstrom expiring and – you know, all the bad money on the books. Then the team had success in the bubble and blew it up for budget reasons. And coming out of that season, you know, a flat cap was now installed. And it was like, okay, like, this is it. This is the last year of their ELC window. And I think they've blown it. I think they've blown it. The next year, it was like, okay, you've got one more year of pain if you can just sit tight. Just sit tight. Don't don't try to stress out against the finger trap. Loosen up and you're free. Obviously, the team didn't do that. And even when Rutherford first took over, last year, when we were having this conversation, it was like, what do you do to quickly restock a franchise with value mm. so that you can surround Pedersen and Hughes and Demko with the sort of supporting cast that gives them at least a shot? At least a shot. Now... Every time, like, the system of the NHL has fully guaranteed contracts and hard cap, okay? I do not believe, and this is something I praised Rutherford for at length, especially based on his time in Pittsburgh. I do not believe that you can both build for the future and the present all at once. I think you have to make the hard decision to do one or the other, and when you make that hard decision, go all in. Are there situations like the Washington Capitals are in where you're like, fine, to be a mushy middle team because you've got a player chasing history yes. and that's worth something to you? You're great at the greatest player in franchise history, yeah. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that in, in extremely specific circumstances, but for the most part, big question. Can you win with this group? If the answer is no. Go about making the steps that are necessary to win in the future. We see this at the trade deadline every year. What's the trade deadline effectively? It's an arbitrage opportunity selling the present for the future, and teams will pay an exorbitant cost for present gains because the marginal value of an upgrade for a contender is mammoth, right? Like Brandon Hagel's all of a sudden worth two firsts, yeah. right? Like Barkley Goudreau's worth a first, you know, prices change. And this is specifically the dynamic that explains why present versus future, an arbitrage opportunity for the bad teams and a chance to stock up to seize history for the good ones. Every time this team, like this is now an urgent thing, okay? Every time this team makes another future or sorry, present oriented move, like the JT Miller deal, like the Ilya Mikheyev deal, honestly, even like the Ethan Bear, Travis Dermott, Riley Stillman deals, they are prolonging the pain 
of what we're enduring, of the mushy middle, of the grim present. Okay? This is not something that can be like back burner you can rebuild later. Now. Because every time you do a Beagle deal, every time you do a Russell deal, every time you make an Oliver ekman Larson trade, every time you do, um, you know, whatever, a good Branson deal. People say I'm always negative about this team, but here's a positive. The Canucks can't redo a McCann-Good-Branson trade because they don't have any good prospects. That's a positive, at least. But every time you begin to mortgage a little bit of your future for the benefit of now, you are selling your future further down the river. Right? This You can't do both things at once. This is not a tank because a tank is an active process. It's something you prepare for. You have to plan to do it and you have to execute it. Canucks have won, what, two of their last nine games? And they've gained four points on the Arizona Coyotes over that time frame? Like, you have to be really bad. It takes a lot of work. This team hasn't done the work. If they were tanking, if they were outright tanking, they'd have a supporter in me. I'd say, hey, good luck. That's a plan. Let's see how you execute it. What's happened here, this isn't tanking. This is bad team construction combined with poor play and a couple of key injuries, specifically to Thatcher Demko. Mm -hmm. That's it. This team's been unlucky. They've been unlucky. And, And here's the issue. Even if they'd been lucky, their ceiling was like 15th best team in hockey. Their ceiling going forward is 15th best team in hockey. And the only way to raise that is to either win like 10 trades in a row, good luck. It's too hard to evaluate players in this league reliably. Nail a draft a la the Dallas Stars, where you get like three franchise-changing pieces and three picks in the top 40. Good luck. We've only seen that once in 30 years. Or be bad. Be really bad and get the benefit of elite talent and selling at the deadline and do it right. Do it right. With draft picks and meaningful futures and oodles of cap space that allow you to take on bad contracts for a further inducement with more futures. That's the only way here. It's the only realistic way forward. And every time this organization struggles against it, every time they you know, quibble between a retool and a rebuild or just building and rebuilding, they're prolonging the pain. Like I got a tweet at me today that said, really has been a lost decade in Vancouver. Dudes, we're in the middle of a lost generation for this franchise. doesn't have to be that way. But if you're confusing this with tanking, even in jest, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the problem here. And that concerns me doubly because Rutherford said, like, this has been harder to do than I anticipated it, anticipated it would be. Well, how's it possible? How's it possible that the media and fans have a better grasp on this than a three-time Stanley Cup winning exec, literally the best general manager of the past era? How's that possible, Jamie? Like, who's, who's, 
if you have hair left, pull it out. Like it's it's honestly hard to fathom. <laughs> I I honestly I I'm trying to grapple with it and just calm myself down, but it's like it felt from a big vision perspective like we got a glimpse into just how lost the Canucks are. Right? Like you ever you ever try to guide a friend to a location and they're like, "I'll send you a pin." And you're like, "Oh my god. You are so far away. 25 minutes." You can't even walk it. Get in an Uber right now. Like, that's what it felt like to me. Hearing the rebuild joke, and I know it was in jest. Or, sorry, the tank joke, and I know it was in jest. But it was just so far off the mark. So far off the mark. When you combine that with the caps going up so the Miller deal won't be an issue, with the rebuild retool formulation, with the idea of targeting young players who've already failed. Yeah. Like, if a young player, and I, I brought this up with Bowen Byram. If the Avs believe that Bowen Byram's going to come back from his injury, they're going to use the fact that he's missed so many games to get a sweetheart mm-hmm. second contract done. Well, I, I, if they offer him to you, run! Teams don't trade good young players! I, I made this point in the 11 o'clock hour, because the, the two things that concerned me most from the press conference were, one, the comments about JT Miller's contract and the cap going up, and two, this point as well, right? We're targeting under 25, 26 uh, players who maybe didn't work out on their ELCs need a change of scenery. You know what happens to a 21-year-old that looks like they're going to be an impact player? They get the Matt Boldy deal, right? They yeah. sign for seven years with their current team. They don't get offered in a trade. No. That doesn't happen. And if you're being offered a 21 or a 22-year-old, almost Run. by definition, that means either they've like publicly underperformed and everyone around the league knows they've struggled, or... The team has some inside information, and they're like more than willing to part ways with the player. It's really hard to actually get meaningful upside if those are the players you're targeting, right? It's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's not impossible to pick off like a Ryan Johansson or a Tyler Sagan. But look at the value that changed hands in those deals. Like Riley Smith plus Louis Erickson before he was, you know, when he was still good, Mm -hmm. plus plus, right? Um, the value's overwhelming. So if you're going to get just one hope bet player, hope bet piece for Bo Horvat, as opposed to a bundle of futures, which can be used to make trades, to uh, you know bolster one of the league's leanest prospect systems, that's the better play. Cash in hand, baby. It's a, a window into the fact that it feels like to me the Canucks are trying to take a conventional approach to an unconventional situation. This team is bereft of value and bereft of hope. And and here's the real thing. Bereft of any confidence in the fan base, right? Like, I don't know that coming out of that, you have confidence in the team's medical staff. Okay, that's a bad place to start. That's routine stuff. That's the day-to-day. If you're thinking critically about this team... If you can't handle an injury situation, how can you handle the big picture? And then you hear the club talk about the big picture, and they're lost. A map couldn't help them. They're in a foggy forest, and there's, like, wolves. Like, they're going to have to, like, break glass bottles and do the Liam Neeson. Punch some wolves to get out. That's how lost they are. And we saw this clear glimpse of that today and it was horrifying honestly horrifying 
There's no sugarcoating this. There's no sugarcoating this. And worst of all, because I'm not a tank absolutist, but this club, by way of making every single short-sighted decision on the way, by virtue of 10 years of incremental death by a thousand cuts, right? Just like small value lost at the margins time and time again. Oh, who cares about Goldobin's opportunity? Oh, who cares about Gustav Forsling? Oh, who cares about Jared McCann? Yeah, maybe nobody individually. But you combine 10 years of bad moves and they pile up and they stack up and you get to this point where we're stuck, as Rutherford put it, we can't move off these bad contracts, right? We are stuck. Okay. That's not an excuse. That's a starting point. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this team can touch at the truth, parry with the truth, get close to the truth, but can't take it to its logical conclusion. If you're stuck, stop digging. You're only making the hole deeper. And truly, this is one where every time this club continues to struggle against it, they extend Kuzmenko rather than get futures for him. If they trade Bo Horvat for young prospects as opposed to full value, because you're going to get more value through picks. And take a bad contract back while you're at it and let him talk extension, like maximize the value of the third leading scorer in the NHL, who's also your top centerman. Like, how do you square a quick turnaround with trading Bo Horvat? You can't do it to me. I will not understand. I can't understand. There is no logical cohesion between those two points. And hearing it, just hearing it, laid bare like that. Man, like, what? what's your source of confidence at this point? I brought up that discrepancy with Gemma, right? And Dalvier texting along those lines. It is maddening that Rutherford is upfront about how bad the team is and how much better it needs to be, but is still pushing a quick retool. Wildly frustrating. That's from Dalvier in the 650-650 inbox. And yeah, how many times have I said on the air, like, whatever you call it, if you trade Bo Horvat, you're rebuilding. That's a rebuilding trade. That's what it looks like. And... It's not, you know, I mean, at least at this point, we've moved beyond semantics, right, to, yes, there is still the semantic debate, retool versus rebuild, but we actually have a very clear explanation of what that uh, retooling plan looks like from Jim Rutherford. So, I mean, credit there, but yeah, I share a lot of those same concerns about the lack of value. You're sacrificing so much upside once you start targeting guys who can step in for next year versus draft picks, right? And you know, the the commentary on draft picks was those guys could be four years away from helping your team. Yeah, they absolutely could. First of all, you don't know that. They could be a lot closer than that, too. But okay, you, you're going to need really good players in four years. Really good, cheap, affordable players with upside in four years. That's not a drawback. That's not something that concerns me about acquiring draft picks. That's just fine. And that's before you even get to your point, Drancer, right? About how easier, how much easier it is to move uh, those assets and to acquire other things of value for them. And, you know, one of the other striking things about uh, what Jim Rutherford had to say, and I know that uh, our colleague Jason Broff brought this up on Twitter as well, but, you know, one of the things he said was, I know it's, you know, I, I know it's not going to happen as quickly as everyone wants, as I want it to, right? And there's this kind of formulation where because of the passion of the market, 
there's this general push from both fans and media to get good really quickly, and the front office is trying to kind of pump the brakes on that a little bit. But that I don't see it that dynamic is existing. And I know you asked, uh, you kind of followed up on that point, Drancer, at the presser, saying that actually a lot of people want them to have patience. But it still seems to be this over overarching idea that you can't take your foot off the gas because of the fan base. And you're kind of, well, no. I don't want to tell people to be patient. We're all trying to do it really quickly. But I don't think that's the ask. No, but it, <laughs> I don't think it, that's the ask. It's patience for you, not for me. I don't want to be patient. I want to ask you to be patient. You're the one being impatient. It's like, no. Right? That's how it works. It's like the organization won't be patient. And then things predictably continue to go badly. And then it's like, what an impatient hockey market. No. We're impatient. With the organization's lack of impatience, and and it, and it's just circular, right? It's it truly there was so much there that just felt circular, you know. And and I don't believe that there's like some great blueprint that they're not spelling out to the fans. They're either masterminds, which based on their work, you think that's true, or this is you know a rudderless ship again. And it's hard to understand how that could be the case, considering Rutherford's resume, considering all the hockey experience the organization brought in. Well, not experience. Hockey, interesting hockey people they brought in to run this ship. But if you can't simply put what you're trying to do, if you're dissembling, if none of it's logically coherent, you know, there's either there's either this great plan they're not sharing, or there ain't one. And sometimes you got to trust your instinct to sniff it out. Like you hear Rutherford talk. Well, I think there's a plan. It's just I don't agree with it. I don't think it's a good plan. But I think there's he he laid out a pretty clear plan. I just don't I don't like the plan. Well, you know you, what I mean. You think so? Yeah. It's they're gonna have to trade. They want so, it. So, they're so gonna so use. You don't see the logical gap. I mean, you do the logical no, no, no. gap yeah, between yeah, yeah. trading Bohorvat, but only for like. Close to NHL-ready oh, no, players no, 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 or 25 to 26? I, I don't like the plan, but it's a plan. Wow. I, you can't say no. they haven't laid it out. He's laid it out now. Now it's now it's fair game for us to critique it, and I certainly have. I don't see I, – I disagree with you. That doesn't seem to me to be a plan. That doesn't make sense. Like, it's not enough to say – like, this is like the Guardians of the Galaxy thing where they're debating, like, that's not even a concept. <laughs> We're going to be good – now and prioritize landing NHL players like that's not a plan that's a talking point truly it's barely it's barely even a concept like what is that it's not a re retool on the fly get failed young players it's not a plan who no one no one you couldn't present that to a board of directors in a normal line of work and have anyone be like okay it doesn't hold up to statistical scrutiny. There's no team that's contending this year that's built that way. There's no analogy for this. It's fly by the seat of your pants. It's passive. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the assignment here is. It's just an excuse to hold a shovel. Uh, Jeff Merrick, by the way, borrowing your uh, Stop Digging line I on love the show it. today. You very, to very it. appreciative. Um, this one. I, this is a we get a ton of a ton of texts. I always appreciate them, but this one has me uh, scratching my head a little bit. Unsigned. 
How many high draft picks actually pan out? Give your heads a shake. Stop already. Lots. Yeah, lots. I don't really understand that one. You ever looked at the guys who go near the top of the draft? <laughs> Tends to be some really, really good players in how, the top 10, in the top five. It, it's amazing how good we are uh, as an industry. Not me. I, I suck. But it's amazing how good hockey, the hockey industry is. Not at evaluating like all talent, but at evaluating the best talent in an age class. Pretty bang on, particularly when it comes to forwards. And yes. increasingly with defensemen. Goalies, eh, we'll see. Still figuring it yeah, out. Yeah, but, but it's actually amazing how efficiently the NHL knows what Patrick Kane looks like versus what everyone else in his draft year does. Like the Eric Johnson goes first overall and third overall as Taves. You actually have to look pretty hard for those. You know, for the most part, 1-0-A is the best player. And sometimes you get like a debate for a few years. Like there was a DeShane Tavares one for a minute. And then it was like, oh, no, no, not, no debate. There was a Barkov um, McKinnon one for like five seconds. Oh, no, no, actually, yeah, wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. You know, pretty rare, like pretty rare that Ryan Nugent Hopkins goes one and, and Philip Forsberg goes 15. Few and far between. So, yeah. High draft picks is your best route to landing elite talent. This team needs more elite talent, but also elite talent is insufficient. Unfortunately, this club has just made so many moves to continually lowering lower their ceiling that there's just no other escape route, right? They've like narrowed their path to contention to the point where I don't think there is one. You know, and, and here's the other thing. I, you know, this core is good. We have good players, okay? They don't play as a team. They're not all in. Mm -hmm. Rick Tockett's going to fix that? I mean, I, sorry, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux had fixed that. 12 months ago. Wasn't even that long. There's babies who are old enough to remember that. Literal babies, newborns. So how can you be in on a core that doesn't play as a team? How does any of this make sense, Jamie? What am I missing? Yeah, uh, no. It's ex again to go back to what I was I was saying to Gemma. There's, it feels like, even in just what we've heard publicly from Jim Rutherford, that there's something missing in the analysis, right? Like why, you know, because he, he he starts talking, and he starts laying out the problems with the team, and it's like, okay, yep, yep, yep. We all see that. We all agree. We're all on the same page here. But then the next logical conclusion never comes. Well, everyone relax. Jim Rutherford is a cup champion and a Hall of Famer. He knows better than anyone that uh, what needs to happen with the Canucks. He was left a massive mess. Give him time. The media is so negative. Let him do his job. Relax. That's my inclination to defer to Rutherford's... Like, that's my natural inclination. I'd mm -hmm. like to be working from that position, from that stance. But here's the fact of the matter, Okay. And I'm sorry, but this is just how I have to analyze it. 12 months ago, my commentary was, this team has too many bad deals. They're not going to be able to reliably move them out, and they need to instead consider trading their best players. Fast forward 12 months, the club instead extends JT Miller, sees Bo Horvat go like on the wake of a career year, then doesn't have the cap space to accommodate Bo Horvat, who goes off for a career year the next season. Okay, and now is saying, this is a harder task than we thought when we first took over. We can't move these bad contracts and we're stuck. 
Okay, so if I was there 12 months ago and the organization is there today, how can I defer to their judgment anymore? That's off the table now. They couldn't see it clearly. They didn't see it clearly. And they made moves that will belabor the decade of pain we've already experienced in this market. So I'm sorry. Like, I can't sit here and be like, well, he knows. He knows. Look at the resume. Look at the work. Look at the year. I'm nobody. And I knew. He should have known. They should have known. They've got millions of dollars of executive talent. They cannot be outthought by a radio host and then have that radio host say, well, I'll defer to them. No, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. It's not even hindsight. Stop it. If, if they know so well, prove it. Make a couple good moves. Stop digging. Chart a plan. Final. Not, don't pretend 25 to 26-year-old players are young. None of this makes sense. Final thought from me, and just the the idea from Bernie from Kelowna there, who texted in, you know, give him time. Somebody else says, uh, you know, they need there needs to be patience. Wait, I'm trying to do that. I want him to take more time. I want the team to take more time to do what I think are the right moves. It's not an impatience thing. It's not a be good for next year thing. I would love it if they would come out and preach patience and take their time doing things in a specific way. That's been the biggest issue. So I don't think it's a case of, oh, they just need more time. They're, you're being impatient. Yes, they need to take more time. We all agree on that. For whatever reason, they seem to be reluctant to do it. All right. Thanks for listening today. Big show. We had three hours on the air. Lots more coverage of Jim Rutherford's press conference coming up here uh, on the station. We will be back tomorrow. You've got it. The home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.